Father, we are delighted this morning to come to your word, to delight in your word. And we ask now that you will speak ever clearly through the sufficiency of your word, that you will encourage us, challenge us, change us, shape us into the image of your son because of our time together in the scripture, we pray for Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Every August, my extended family gathers over in Hubbard at Harding Park for our annual family reunion. Now, if your family reunion is anything like mine, it's often a fascinating cultural experience, isn't it? It's kind of a mixture of great joy in the faces that you get to see, the people you don't see often, but you do once a year. Then there are those unusual, unidentifiable casseroles that you have to navigate and pound like it's your job. And that's a lot of fun too. And then there's always typically that one awkward moment or conversation with that extra special aunt or uncle that I know we all have in our family. Family reunions are very interesting. A few years back, we had a family reunion that we would never forget. We arrived in Hubbard uh, at Harding Park. It was a glorious day. We arrived to to hot food and to warm greetings. And after a while, our kids asked us if they could go uh, to a play area down at the bottom of a hill, a really neat play area. So, yeah, of course, absolutely. Go have fun, be safe, just check back in in a little while. Easy enough, or so we thought. Sarah and I made our merry way to the bocce courts. We played a little bocce ball with some of the Italians in our family. And then, in the distance, we could see very slowly looked like our children walking up the hill, only it didn't quite look like them. And it was in that moment that I, I realized two things. Uh, number one, that feeling that all parents get when they know something has is, is gone awry with the, the, the play trip. The other thing is that I remembered that just days before we had experienced some torrential rains, like big time, big time rain. And so as these two figures began walking closer, we realized that these were in fact our children, but they were caked head to toe in cold, wet mud. Now, those, uh, those are not my children. These children uh, are far too happy um, because the, the look that I gave them that pierced their very soul uh, quickly took the smile off their faces. Uh, <laughs> they were so muddy, we didn't even know what to do or where to start. So we, you know, kind of got them into the the small little bathroom in the pavilion. We strip them down, and we're we're essentially bathing them now, standing up from the water in the sink. (laughs) I remember at one point, Topher started to shiver, and with great compassion, I looked at him, and I said, oh, you're cold, are you? You should have thought about that before you got in a big mud fight with your sister. I mean, it was just the lack of compassion was striking, but we eventually got them mostly cleaned up. Uh, Everyone made it alive back into the car, And we, uh, believe it or not, had some pretty good laughs uh, about the whole incident. It's just funny, funny times. I probably don't need to tell you, but life can get pretty messy. And I'm not just talking about when our kids get dirty. I mean, life is incredibly complex, isn't it? It's unpredictable, and and many times it's just, it's full of distress and anguish. And as we've learned over the last couple of weeks, starting a new series in the book of Judges, that that messiness, that anguish comes because of this cycle of sin that we find ourselves often caught in, engaging in, others around us. This cycle of sin 
makes a glorious mess for us and for our lives. Today, we happen to be coming to a a chapter in the book of Judges where things really get messy. Like the cycle is in full swing. And as we get into that mess, it's important for us to ask a few questions, both of the text and for ourselves. Questions like, how do we get ourselves into this stuff in the first place? Questions like, where is God when the cycle of sin is in full swing? Is he present? Is he absent? What's he thinking? What's he doing? And maybe most importantly, is there any way out? Is there any way to clean all of this stuff up? Is there any reprieve, any remedy for the cycle of sin? It's with those questions that I'd ask you to meet me in your Bibles this morning in the book of Judges, chapter 3. You'll find it on page 202 of the Pew Bibles. And I would encourage you, especially as we are biting off these larger chunks of the Old Testament, to to either bring a Bible, or if you don't have one, please don't be embarrassed. Just use one of the Pew Bibles. It will help you to engage uh, much more with with the Scriptures. It will help you to be an active listener and a variety of other things. So take a look. I'm going to read this passage out loud. I will reaffirm Pastor Nick's good exhortation for mental staying power. Although I'll say this, as we get into this particular uh, narrative, I think you will find it grabs your attention in a a variety of ways. Judges chapter 3, and I'm going to start reading in verse 7. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashereth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, And the people of Israel served Cushan, Rishathaim, eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan, Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands. And his hand prevailed over Cushan, Rishathaim. So the land had rest for 40 years. Then Othniel, son of Kenaz, died. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went in and defeated Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms, and the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ahud, son of Gera, the Benjaminite a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute to him, to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all of his attendants went out from his presence. And Ahud came to him. He was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ahud said, I have a message from God for you. He arose from his seat and Ahud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull out the sword from his belly, and the dung came out. Yes, we are still reading the Bible. (laughs) 
Verse 23, then Ahud went out into the porch. He closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them. When he'd gone, the servants came. And when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he's relieving himself in the closet of the cool chamber. And they waited there until they were embarrassed. But when he did not still open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key, opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ahud escaped while they delayed. He passed beyond the idols and escaped near Sarah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet on the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down, they seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites, and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men. Not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad. He also saved Israel. Okay. What do we do with a passage like this? It's going to get real this morning. It's going to get real this morning. Well, I think one of the dangers, I think one of the dangers is to get hung up in some of the unsavory details of the narrative and actually miss the big conclusion that the Lord wants us to make. So let's do this. Let's take it slow and make two big observations just about what's happening in the text, and then that will lead us to a very important, very practical conclusion. Two big observations leading to a conclusion. The first of those observations is that this cycle of sin leads to God's judgment and to our distress. This pattern, this this passion for sin results in judgment and distress. We see it beginning in in verse 7. You might look back at it with me. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherah. And then the text just kind of goes on to flesh out what is basically the first on-the-ground example of this cycle. We've heard about it in general the last couple of weeks. This is the the first on-the-ground example that in turn serves as a pattern for the rest of the book. And in just this one verse, in verse 7, we see some, some chilling things about this cycle. For example, the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Evil. That's a striking word, isn't it? It is to me. Not only evil, but evil in the sight of the Lord. So this means that that God himself, a personal being, was actually the one against whom they were sinning. He's the one against whom we sin. That goes a step further, and it actually means that God and God alone is the one who draws the boundary lines between what is good and what is evil. He sets the terms. And that, I think, is a really important point for for us modern people to think about because we're living in a day where it's becoming increasingly difficult to call anything good or evil. Good and evil in this kind of postmodern time are becoming opinions more than they're becoming objectives. And yet, that's not what we see being laid out here in the scriptures. And and I think one of the dangers for us is, is that ultimately there's some type of influence taking place within our culture. We, we may never express this kind of relativistic view of good and evil, and yet I wonder where the first place we turn is when we are trying to figure out what is good and true and right for our life. 
Do we turn, for example, to our feelings, which are very powerful, which may have one interpretation of good or evil or this decision or that decision? Do we turn to our experiences, which again are as equally powerful, or, or do we turn to the Lord as the one who actually can set the terms for what is pleasing or displeasing to him? That's a heavy thing to think about, but that some of our actions and attitudes and behaviors are actually displeasing to God. We might take that a step further, and you might ask yourself, how do you respond when God, by way of his word, actually calls out one of those behaviors or one of those patterns, cycles in your life? Do you bristle up or do you bow down, recognizing that God actually knows what's best for you? You might try that as an exercise this week. Before making or engaging in a decision, what, would this be actually pleasing or displeasing to God? Another chilling aspect of verse 7 is that little phrase, you, you might look at it, they forgot the Lord their God. They forgot him. Now this isn't just some type of temporary amnesia. The word is, is much more striking than that. It means to disregard or to not take into account. This is really helpful for me because as I hear these things, the cycle of sin, a passion for sin, I think one of the temptations we will face throughout the series in the book of Judges is to quickly dismiss it and think of it as only like the big sins, you know, like murder and stealing and just kind of full tilt debauchery. And yet, what's the first sign of evil that we see in this passage? We just said it. It's, it's forgetting the Lord. I wonder how easy it has become for us to forget about the Lord in a given day. To just allow him to kind of fade into the white noise of life. That he isn't the driver for our decisions and our patterns. He just kind of fades into the background. From this point, we see verse 8. This cycle leads to then judgment and distress. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. He sold them into the hands of Cushan, Rishathaim, and then the people served this wicked king for eight years. Later, 18 years for another enemy king. We've got to, to get this passage, we've got to put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites for a minute. I mean, that's one verse, eight years, but eight years is a long time. That's a lot of anguish. That's a lot of pain. Because the cycle of sin will lead to that type of anguish and that type of judgment that the Lord renders. Listen, I know this can be hard for us to swallow, but, but God's holiness and his character demands that he deal with wickedness. He wouldn't be God if he weren't willing to deal with wickedness. And as much as that can be difficult for us to swallow and understand, it's also good for us to think about the way in which God's judgment cuts in a variety of ways. Think about it this way. Pastor Dale Ralph Davis, he puts it this way regarding this passage. He said, God's wrath or anger or judgment is the heat of his jealous love by which he refuses to let go of his people, allowing them to remain comfortable in sin. Serving Cushion Rishathaim, he says, may not sound like salvation to us, and it isn't, but if it forces us to lose our grip on Baal, then it might be the beginning of salvation. I recently picked up a new lawnmower. I was way overdue. My old craftsman had been puttering along for a number of years now. It was really only one step up from those mowers, the real mowers that don't even have an engine, you know, the open blade things. So I upgraded from my old mower, and I bought myself a nice lawnmower. It's got a bigger deck, much bigger engine, zero turn, self-powered. 
very self-powered, so, so much so that at times the thing actually gets away from me. You know, I'm still kind of learning the controls and I may pull a wrong lever here or there. Well, last week, while I, I was mowing the lawn, I had finished um, and I was getting ready to put the thing into the shed. I attempt to walk it up the ramp and it suddenly begins walking me up the ramp. It kind of takes off. I pull the wrong lever. It takes a sharp turn into the wall of the shed. I actually haven't even told my wife this story yet. Um, sharp turn into the shed. So I try to, I try to out-muscle the thing, which of course is not working. It's actually making it worse. It continues to turn until finally it pins my hand into the opposite door frame. And uh, if you've ever hurt the top of your hand, it hurts. And it wasn't until I felt that pain that I released my grip and the mower shut down. Serving... Cushion, Rishathai may not sound like salvation, and it isn't, but if it forces us to lose our grip on Baal, then it may be the beginning of salvation. So the cycle of sin leads to judgment and distress, but it begs the question, where does the story go from here? And this is the second kind of big observation that I want us to make before we get to that all-important conclusion. The second observation that we see is God raising up these unusual deliverers to provide unusual victory. The Lord provides unusual, even unlikely deliverers as instruments of his most unusual victories. And we can flesh this out a little bit by diving a little deeper into the the unusual characters uh, of these narratives. The first one, in verses 7 through 11, we have Othniel against Cushion Rishathayim, this guy with the big name. We've heard his name a lot. And his name actually means Cushion the Double Wicked. In other words, this is one bad boy. He's a bad man. Cushion the Barbarian, maybe. A world-class emperor, a formidable opponent. And then you have Othniel, who is described as the son of Caleb's kid brother. Not a likely victory. And yet, surprisingly, wonderfully, like last year's Cleveland Cavaliers comeback victory against the Golden State Warriors, verse 10 tells us, his hand prevailed. Othniel got the upset. Then in verse 12, we meet Eglon, king of Moab. He's described later as a a big-boned king. Um, Maybe like Jabba the Hutt, we would think, of this king, Eglon. His opponent... God goes out to the pitcher's mound. He points to his left arm and he says, give me the lefty from Benjamin, Ehud. And there's some really interesting irony in the fact that Ehud was left-handed, including that Benjamin, his tribe, where he came from, actually means son of my right hand. Yeah, talk about not living up to expectations. You take that a step further because many scholars believe that Ehud's left-handedness was actually due to some type of restriction or defect in his right hand. And yet, this weakness, this perceived weakness, this not living up to expectations, is actually what caused him to strap the sword that he made to his opposite thigh. It would have been a much more inconspicuous place to hide a weapon. That's how he was able to get past the guards. So we can kind of track the narrative into verse 17. He makes his way to the king, ultimately presents him that tribute, and then he tells the king that he's got a secret message for him from God. The king is intrigued. He, he takes the bait. 
he sends all of his attendants out of the room so he can be alone. This is like the scene in the horror movie where the teenagers try to hide from the killer in the graveyard. Like, yeah, this is, yeah, this is not good. This is not good. Ehud then delivers the secret message, which again, in a stroke of irony, is actually a secret dagger. I think we could say that Eglon got the point. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That was, I won't do that again. I won't do that again. So Ehud locks the doors of the chamber and he escapes while the king's attendants wait outside. And it was only when they smelled trouble. Oh, I did it again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's the last one, I promise. Listen, folks, there's humor in this story, okay? The Israelites would have read it with humor. There's tragedy in this story. There's irony. There's humor. So it's okay. We can, we can go there. After his escape, uh, Ahab does lead a following of Israelites. They conquer a, a pretty sizable army. Verse 29 describes them as all strong and able-bodied men. And this unusual victory provides 80 years worth of rest for God's people. And then lastly, and just quickly, uh, verse 31, we see this judge Shamgar. Shamgar, who killed 600 of the Philistines arguably the greatest warriors of that day, with an ox goad, the text says, and he also saved Israel. It's like this obscure little footnote, isn't it? And the only detail we have is that he, he kills hundreds of men with the, an ox goad. What is that? Well, an ox goad is, is like a long staff with a point on one end for driving the ox and a spade on the opposite end for cleaning out the plow. So he basically saved Israel with a pointy stick. It's just weird, folks. It's just weird stuff. It's unusual. And I think that's what helps us understand the meaning behind this section section of the text. Could draw out a couple of very practical applications from this. First is that we are reminded that God delights to use the unusual or even unimpressive to accomplish his purposes. He's the God of shamgars and ox goads, we could say. Which means, if you are here this morning and you're feeling a little insignificant, a little underqualified, a little too introverted for God to use you, you should find great encouragement from this passage because it has been and remains God's mode of operation to use the unimpressive things of the world to shame the strong. He did it with Ehud. He did it with Shamgar. Years later, he would do it with another who was born in a manger, who came from Nazareth. Are you kidding me? What good comes out of Nazareth? a lowly carpenter's son. He used the one whose cross is still to this day by many considered weak and foolish and yet the instrument of deliverance. This means God can use you. It also means that that you can be aware and ready for God to use you. Take that a step further. Actually anticipate that area of your life. If you're the the stay-at-home mom who's stuck in the four walls of your house, it seems like, for 28 hours a day, a very unusual, difficult circumstance that that you just never know. God may use you this week to influence your children or a neighbor or some other aspect of your life that seems unusual or unimpressive. These are the means that God uses to accomplish his purposes. On the other side of that equation, I wonder if there might be others of us here who at times get a little too big for our spiritual britches. You know, if we're honest... There can be a little pride kind of creeping in there. I mean, isn't, isn't God fortunate 
isn't Old North Church fortunate to have me on the team? Right, I mean, so well-adjusted, right? And so spiritually mature, and I've served, served the Lord so faithfully for all these years, and yet this text is, is giving us an opportunity this morning to reposition from haughty to humble. This is not just a practical application. This is really important because this kind of rising humility gets us thinking a little less about ourselves and a little bit more about the true hero of this story. And that is the big conclusion that we've been leading up to this whole time. We see that cycle of sin leading to judgment and distress. We see these unusual delivers and victories. And what all of that means in translation is that our passion for sin is no match for God's compassion to save. Yeah, we should and can rejoice over that. Our passion for sin is no match for God's compassion to save. This is what this passage is telling us. The heroes of the story are not the judges. The hero is the Lord. We see it in places like verse 10. The spirit of the Lord was upon Othniel. The Lord gave Cushan Rishathaim into his hand. We see it again in places like verse 15. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up a deliverer. You know, we didn't spend a lot of time earlier on the cries of the people, but it's pretty important that we pause at that aspect of this cycle and point out that, that at least for these texts here that we read today, these were not cries of repentance per se. The people were not expressing sorrow over their sins as much as they were expressing sorrow over their sorrow. They were just miserable. Eight years, 18 years. Misery and totally helpless to save themselves. Do you see the remarkable connection and implications that that has on God's compassion to save? The implication is that God didn't save his people because they were genuinely repentant. He didn't save them because they deserved it. He saved because he is overflowing with compassion. He is relentless, the hound of heaven, in pursuing his people unto salvation. And so our passion for sin doesn't stand a chance against God's compassion to save. A few years back, a 50-year-old construction worker named Wesley Autry was taking his two daughters to school by way of the subway. And as they were waiting at the terminal, uh, they heard the horn sound, the train was coming, and almost immediately after the horn sounded, a man standing next to them had a seizure and fell onto the tracks. Autry, uh, with almost no hesitation, jumped in, and not having time to, to claw their way back out, rolled both himself and this man in between the tracks, pressed deep into the ground, and the train passed over them, and both men lived. Remarkable story of compassion. There's another. A man was once walking down a long road when out of nowhere he was attacked by a merciless gang, a group of thieves who stripped him down, took all of his possessions, beat him, and left him for dead on the side of the road. Not long after, a priest was going down the same road. And when he saw him, he he passed over on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he came to the place, he also passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, he bound his wounds, he gave him medical attention, he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day, he took out his own money, he gave it to the innkeeper, he said, take care of him, whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. Remarkable compassion. And we often hear these stories, the story of the Good Samaritan, stories like we hear in Judges 3, and we, we think to ourselves, well, I should be like that. I should, I should show compassion to people. I should be like the Good Samaritan. And there's some truth in that. But what we often miss in these stories and in narratives like we've read today in Judges 3 is the gospel. Because the gospel, you see, positions us not so much as Ehud or Shamgar as it does the people stuck in another stupid rut and cycle of sin. The gospel positions us not so much as the good Samaritan as it does the person who's laying half dead on the side of the road who needs compassion given to us, you see. And God, in his great compassion, has provided one for the job who's not only a good Samaritan, but a great one. One who would not deliver God's people by thrusting a sword into his enemy's side, but one who instead would take the sword into his own side. One who never ever fell into the cycle of sin. One who never gave way to the temptation of that cycle and yet he took the judgment for every cycle of sin that every person on planet earth has ever fallen into upon himself. This is the great reversal of the gospel. One through his life, death, and resurrection offers rest not 80 years long but for an eternity to those that would believe. It's good news, folks. It's good news. The one who Matthew's gospel says, when the crowds came and he saw them, he had compassion. Why? Because they were harassed and helpless. If you have gone through the morning with that sense of just being harassed by sin, almost feeling helpless, like you're stuck and you can't get out, you are in a very good place, believe it or not. Because there is one passing by along the side of the road who will take interest in you, whose compassion not only drives him to action, but whose compassion actually is powerful enough to overcome the cycle of sin. Your passion for sin is no match for his compassion to save. And if you're here and have already experienced that compassion of Jesus, you might be challenged afresh today to remember where you came from. To remember that you were half dead along the side of the road until the great Samaritan came along. Paid the ultimate price. You might allow that this morning to awaken in you a fresh wonder at the compassion of God. You know, we get, I do it, we get so ho-hum about the compassion of God to save us. Great is thy faithfulness, yawn. Thou changest not, thou compassions, they fail not, yawn. May we be known, friends, as a people that radiate wonder at the compassion of God, that display enthusiasm to share it, humility to continue depending on it. Why? Because our passion for sin 
is no match for the compassion of God to save. With that, let me pray. Father, overwhelm us afresh today at the depth of your compassion to save us. May we be refreshed and encouraged that the cycle of sin can only be overcome, not by willpower, not by good works, but only by your overwhelming compassion to save. We trust you for these things. We thank you for these things. In the name of Jesus, amen.